Hey everybody, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and this is our Veteran Stories Difference Makers, and I'm delighted to have Mike Bethune with us, Army Veteran. Hi, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Dr. Craig? Fantastic to have you here, and firstly, I'd like to say thank you for your service. Thank you, appreciate it. I'd love for you to share with us what motivated you to get into the military, firstly. Uh, sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, born in the inner city to good, solid parents. Um, we grew up in the housing projects there, um, and that was an anomaly to have both your parents growing up in that environment. And uh, they both worked jobs. My, my mom was a teacher. My dad was, um, they're both still living, by the way. They're 83 and 80 years old. Yeah, and I wow. love them. Love them to life. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we grew up in a good, solid home. We didn't have much in the way of, you know, economic means. We just came from good, solid, hardworking parents that that taught us solid work ethics. So after high school, I thought I was going to get a big track and field scholarship. Um, and I played some football in the city league. So I thought that, you know, my athletic abilities would would carry me over at least to to garner some monies to go to college. Um, I've all, I was always a good academic student. Um, but that didn't work out that way. So, you know, things came to a head in my senior year in high school. So I opted for the military. I went to United States Army. Um, it wasn't a decision out of patriotism. Honestly, it was a decision to, number one, go and become a man. Number two, take uh, an economic burden off of my parents because they had six children to raise. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, I just wanted to make a way for myself. But I do want to say that when I went in over time, it grew on me, you know, the conditioning, the mental conditioning of the military grew on me and I became patriotic. You know, I literally bought in like after about my after about the first year, I said, OK, this is who I am right now. So let's do this. And um, uh, yeah, so that's 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 initially what prompted me to go into the military. Tell us about the the part of the army that you were in and some of your experiences while there. Yeah, I was in a pretty hardcore unit. Um, I was in a. Um, an engineer unit that had combat engineers that also had construction engineers, combat engineers, uh, build bridges, blow bridges, deal with a lot of C4 and heavy artillery, things of that nature. And then we had the construction side where we could also build um, in a heartbeat, build a runway out of a jungle if we had it to. So, so that it was that kind of a unit that was um, always geared up to be rapidly deployed anywhere in the world. And um yeah, that's the kind of unit that that I was in. And during the time, the second year that I was in um, and I knew the probability of being deployed to a hostile environment was there when I signed on the line because my older brother was a Marine and he kind of prepped me. He, he was in Beirut and all of that. So he prepped me for, you know, the psychological aspect of what might happen. You know, um, so, you know, I knew that that could happen anyway. Um, uh, during the mid 80s and i know i'm in my 50s now i know i don't look like it but <laughs> i still do my best to stay in some kind of good shape but um yeah so in my second year in my unit was deployed with the first wave of troops that went to the border of nicaragua to um defend honduras and um align with the honduran army and provide perimeter security for them and whatever else they needed build runways blow this blow that whatever was needed because at that time there was a coup that took place in uh, Nicaragua um, by a group of rebels called the Sandinistas. And um, and it was a serious event. You know, it it didn't get as much, I guess, uh, airtime as a as a typical mm. 
war and not to compare it to my other comrades, but it was more of a covert operation, um, at least in the mid 80s, the latter 80s, um, when the 82nd Airborne went in around 88, then it was a whole different operation, you know, but we was we were one of the first uh, waves that went into that environment. And it was it's, it's so that's lush jungle out there in Central America. And it was less um, hand to hand warfare or firefights and things of that nature. And that the warfare there was more psychological than anything, because you didn't know. You just didn't know what was going to happen from one minute to the next. And yes, some people lost their lives. And I remember we lost some Blackhawk Black Hawk helicopters that went too far over into Nicaragua airspace. Um, so it was it was that, you know, being a 19 and a half year old and just the psychology of it all. And um, mm. okay, I don't know if tomorrow is my day to to be taken out or whatever the case. So that that right there is enough to drive you nuts. Because there's no like human reference point for that, like how to deal with that. Training doesn't really prepare you for that either. And so um, one of the things that that I did and other guys in my unit did, I saw older guys doing it first. Um, they would have the, the people, women who washed our uniforms. Um, I forgot what they did. There was a term for them, but they would come around, they wash our uniforms and we'd give them um, a few dollars or a few limpera in, in their money and um, Honduran money. And uh, and then I saw guys getting these bags of like little leaves from these women and they would chew a little bit on the leaves. And eventually I started to I inquired, I said, hey, so what, what are you guys doing? Why do you do that? And they said, these things kind of just numb you up. You know, they numb you up just in case today when we go out on perimeter guard or when we go in the bush or whatever, if you get hit and chewing these things, you won't even feel it. And it turns out that they were coca leaves because out there are the mm -hmm. cartels. You can walk, you can walk a hundred yards and walk into coca plants. And so it was that kind of a situation. And I started doing that. And for the whole six months, every morning, we kind of just chew on those little things. And I had no, no mindset, no knowledge at all of what addiction was. I was an athlete. You know, going in, mm. I was an athlete, always pride myself on working out, keeping myself together, keeping my mind short, sharp. <clears throat> and so I felt like we were doing this just to get through what we had to get through. And I do want to preface this, um, Dr. Craig, by saying that um, to my other comrades who went through their combat situations without doing that, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not implying that everybody does that. I'm saying some people in our unit did that. And I was one of the ones that that chose to do it because it was just a lot for me to deal with psychologically. So mm. I'd rather be numbed up if something, something happened. Um, but the problem was that, and I found this out in a major way in hindsight, that it was creating a monster in me that would eventually um, come to overtake my life in some major ways and, and just derail my life in a big way, in a big way. Thanks be to God that I made it, made it through all of that. But um, yeah, so um, eventually, uh, we spent six months in that environment. Um, and when we came back from that deployment, uh, we went through a little kind of downloading, if you will. But then I began to notice that in the day to day activities, when we got back to, to normal military life, that this thing was in me. And I still now I had cravings to have that, that feeling again. Right. And so, you know, and it, People told me that, hey, this this plant is the same plant that they make 
cocaine with. And then they showed me where it was. And so, yeah, so I was in the military. I was still rising up the ranks because I, I thrived in a structured environment. But I had this dualistic life. By day, I was rising up the ranks and became sergeant and all that. And then uh, my off time, I was I was going to feed this monster. So I, I was I was a mess. Um, um, I stayed in. I stayed in for a total. And I dealt with PTSD from the situation. And I didn't even know that that's what it was called then because PTSD wasn't even really on, on the radar the way it is today. In the 80s, it was more like and in our unit in our unit to show to show weakness uh, or to say that something's going on with me was to say that, you know, you're weak or you can't handle it because we're hardcore. We go anywhere in the world and we handle our business. And so I stayed silent and I suffered. I suffered in silence for a long time in the military. Um, and eventually um, I got out honorably um, after seven years. I, I opted to go, go. I did the first four years and then I reenlisted. And then I did three more years. And, and then eventually from talking to my dad a bunch, my dad was friends with this guy who was a uh, uh, captain of the New Jersey State Troopers. And he he was in charge of minority recruitment. And so my dad, you know, my dad blows my horn all the time. Oh, my son, he's military. He's a sergeant. He's hardcore. He's just he'd be a perfect New Jersey State Trooper. I can see him with the hat on and he has all the training. And so my dad talked me kind of talked me into it. Um, and I, I kind of wanted a way out of the military at that time, too, because I just felt like it just wasn't it just wasn't working out for me internally anymore. I, I needed to get out of there and try something new. So I came home and started talking to this guy, the state trooper, and, um, you know, and was on the verge of taking the test and never took the test because the addiction really began to take over my life at that time. At that time, so so how did it manifest then this this addiction? Oh my God! Um, well, um, how can I explain it? I I knew again. I didn't know the magnitude of what I was dealing with because I always felt like you know God's given me a good mind to work with, and if there's a way, I'm gonna think my way out of this situation. You know my my neurotransmitters are still firing well, and my receptors are doing what they're supposed to do. I can figure this thing out and um, and make my way out of it. But eventually I realized that I was dealing with something that was bigger than just being able to think your way out of it. You know, and I needed some help. I needed people to to teach me and show me. But but Dr. Craig, I because I didn't want to bring this burden on my parents. Right. I chose to be um, homeless. I chose I chose to be homeless, meaning my parents have a home, my brothers, everybody, you know, I have a big, beautiful family and everybody that cares about me. But because I because I knew that I was unpredictable and I couldn't figure out what was really happening in my own mind, um, I chose to be like nomadic and live off the land with my military training. And I, I literally started clicking up with these uh, this group of people in my city, in my hometown that were, you know, homeless and dealing with addiction and lived along the railroad tracks or wherever we could find a little cubby hole. And, and I, I was a part of that world for a while. And, uh, um, but addiction, we know it, it's progressive, you know, mm -hmm. it's not going to stand still. It always wants more and wants more. And I'd be laying there sometime like laying on whatever, uh, 
bushes, laying in the bushes or laying on a piece of cardboard somewhere up under some foliage because I would, again, use my experience and camouflage myself. People would literally be going about their daily business and I could be 10 feet away from them. They never know that that I was there. Um, but laying in, in that predicament, I just remember my mind saying, man, or one of two things, this thing, this, this, this is going to end one or two ways. Either I'm going to die like this or when when I come out of this, um, I'm going to be a person who's going to be able to help a whole lot of people. I always believed that it, was, it, it could only end one of those two ways. Mm. Um, eventually, I had I got tired of the suffering and the catalyst was I saw one of the guys that used to be a part of the homeless camp. And he he left the camp, say, about three months ago. Right. And then I saw this guy show up on a Sunday morning. Now, me and the other people, a few of the other people that we did our getting high with, we had emerged from this like 20, almost a 48 hour stupor of just going at it, going at it. And we're, we're, we're coming out of our places where we live or, you know, where we survived. Um, and I saw this guy, Todd was his name. And he was coming down, walking down the railroad tracks because that was a shortcut to get from one way to another. And he had a Bible under his arm and he was shining. He was shining. He was, oh man. I said, hey man, what's going on? And he said, hey Mike, how you doing? I said, I'm, you can see how I'm doing. I'm not doing too good, but <laughs> it looks like <laughs> it looks like you're really doing well. Like <laughs> what's going on? Like what it, what'd you do? Like how, how does this happen? And he said, well, I'm on my way to church right now. But if you meet me after church in a certain place, I'll explain to you what happened. And he told me that um, somebody shared, talk about faith now, somebody shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And he started going to church and faith became the central part of his life. And he also started going to um, N.A. and A.A. meetings. Right. And he used that combination of spirituality and then also the uh, the wisdom of Dr. Bob and Bill W. and those guys in the Oxford group who created AA. And um, those two things were working for him. I could tell because he used to be in our circle. So I had tangible evidence um, of the fact that there was hope for me. That's mm -hmm. what Bob represented to me. And, uh, and so then I, I, I started reaching out after that point. I said, you know what? Enough is enough. I, I want what he has. I went to the veterans department um, at a VA hospital and they put me into counseling and they diagnosed me um, with PTSD and with with some uh, pretty heavy depression. And they told me they helped me understand that even the pain of being in, in the, my military conflict and the pain of suffering in the streets and all of that, that they explained to me how it, it compounds and. You know, and it could really mess with you psychologically and you could get stuck in a place no matter how much ability you have and determination you have. Sometimes you need help. I mean, they, they had me on depression meds for a while. Um, yeah, I really had to go through that whole stage wow. and get the help that I needed. Uh, but but faith, faith played a major part in my life, too. God put a mentor in my life and I'm I'm forever indebted to this man. He's he's on the other side of life now. His name was Reverend Dr. Solomon J. Tividay, and I met him in a program that I went into. The VA recommended that I get out of my hometown and go into a program uh, and get some help. And I went to this program and 
we, they gave me some options for a bunch of different programs, but I chose this one in particular because it had the combination that Todd taught me about. Uh, they offered spirituality and faith, and they would have uh, preachers come in there and teach you the scriptures. And then they also had um, clinicians, um, LCSWs, and they had a psychologist on, you know, and so the best of both worlds. And those things work for me because, Dr. Craig, I've always had, I never had a name for it really, but I've always had this internal knowing that God was with me and everything and mm -hmm. that and that there is a God and that and that I had come to a place in my life where where no matter how good I can think and all that I needed God's help and I needed God to send some good human intervention to help me in my situation and that's what happened and um when Dr. Solomon came in my life um he said to me one day he said Mike you have tremendous potential and he said people follow you for the good or for the bad. And he said, I want to help you. So he took me on as his mentee and started training me in the, this man had a PhD in psychology and he was, and he also had a uh, master's of divinity. So mm -hmm. I wanted what he had and he just started pouring himself into me. And he said to me, um, Dr. Craig one day, something that I'll never forget. And this really made the light bulb go on for me, made the switch go on. He said, he said, with all the potential you have, you still are holding back because you're afraid of something. And what I was afraid of was, I didn't know what was on the other side of that addiction. It's almost like that world had, the abnormal had become normal for me. Mm. And as crazy as it was, it was a sort of comfort for me because at least yeah. I, knew, I knew what to expect in that world. And this man's telling me that there, there's something better for me on the other side of this. And it was a fear to really let go and let him lead me to that to that other side. And he said, he said, when the pain of where you are is greater than the fear of where you have the potential to go, then you'll move. That's what he said. Wow. And it took me a while to digest exactly what that meant. But I, I realized after a while that, you know, the pain pain being a pain and fear, both being dual motivators, right? It'll propel or it'll paralyze. And mm. for a while it had me stuck because I was in this mindset of, you know, woe is me, oh, this happened to me, um, et cetera. Um, and when Dr. Solomon helped me make the, the mental paradigm shift that, um, yeah, you went through that those situations and unfortunately, the 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 um, hostile environment situation, you know, you ended up with an addiction coming out of that. Um, but that's water under the bridge now. You can't change that. He said, what you can change is how you think about that. And mm. when I shifted, when I made that mental paradigm shift, I said, OK, maybe maybe something good can come all, out of all this because I'm still alive. And now i got a story and I got I got something to share. And I started getting better. And I said, OK, that thing that used to. Um, come to me when I was laying in those bushes that either I'm going to die or or God's going to bring me out of this and I'm going to be able to help other people. That started coming back to me. And I said, wow, this is really being manifested in my life right now. So I'm going for it. And Dr. Solomon encouraged me to go to school. I went um, back to school and just like him, I want to be like him. This man, other than my father, my earthly father, who I love to no end, but he, you know, he can only teach me uh, what he knew. And that was good, solid work, work ethic, be the best man that you can be, work hard, etc. Dr. Solomon 
is my spiritual father. And this man taught me, you know, things about my inner self and how and how to pull out the potential that was in there and also how to leverage the power of all the pain that I had gone through. He said, there, he said, he said, with, with, with every pain that any human being experiences, there's potential to pull power out of it. If you can make the mental paradigm shift. Mm. I went back to school and over the course of over the course of about 12 or 13 years, I earned three degrees um, wow. and uh, in uh, biblical counseling slash psychology. So I've studied, you know, um, I've studied the scriptures, but I've also studied um, Freud and Glasser and Pavlov and those people. And, and Pavlov made so much sense to me. Right. The whole ringing of the bell. That was me. That was me. That's what that thing inside of me did. I I was that. And that had to be broken. You know, the dog salivating. I resonated with all that. And I said, you know, what? I, I, I'm beginning to understand what happened to me. And I'm beginning to understand uh, really how to come out of it, but not just come out of it. Also be able to explain to other people and counsel and coach them out of it, too. And sort of like mm-hmm. wounded healer you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah I, mike i just i just wanted to ask is that the reason for the books because you've written three books yeah and um uh, just share with us um about your books and i'll show them on the screen yeah dr craig the one that you have on up right now i mean that book right there i wrote a year ago that's that's a culmination that's the culmination of all that i'm sharing with you right now of my transformation right that 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 uh the caterpillar Right. Um, in that cocoon, that restriction for me, that was my addiction. That was my PTSD. That was my depression. That was that cocoon. But the cocoon is. Uh, it has a purpose to it. It has a purpose to it. And there's some potential in the cocoon. And 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 eventually when you emerge from the cocoon, the co- because you come out of the cocoon, right, you come out with a level of strength that that's able to um, that enables you to then be able to to soar to heights in life that you never thought that you had the potential to. So mm. in this book, I show the 10 stages that Dr. Solomon helped me to walk through. Like number one, okay. address, addressing my fear. I had to get over that and get unparalyzed first. And then acknowledging the pain that it was real, that I went through it, that mm. some of it was my doing and some of it happened to me and some of it I caused and accepting all of that. So I walked through all those 10 stages of how somebody literally can take to look at their pain from a different perspective and then start le- walking through the stages and leveraging the, the pain of your situation. Because man, people, not your pain, your pain can give you things that I'm getting excited about it now. Cause I, because when I start talking about it, I'm reminded of how far God has brought me from, but it, but it, it was divine intervention, but it was also hard work on my part, you know, to, to, to just not settle for where mm-hmm. I was. I'm forever trying to get, trying to get better and trying to help other people get better. So that's what that book is about for anybody that's dealing with anything. Um, the 10 steps, 10 principles in that book are applicable to any aspect of life that's gone wrong. Any. Mike, is it okay if we talk about the eight steps? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Let me just grab. So the steps are, The first step is addressing the fear, right? Uh, Facing it, facing what's holding you back from going to get help because there's a lot of people suffering in silence. And I know a lot of my um, my comrades, especially those of us that are comrades in arms that have been in hostile environments and things of that nature, 
you know, sometimes like you may be in a unit like I was in where you don't want to talk about it because you're going to be identified as somebody who who's showing weakness. Uh, mm. But I found out that um, the real strength is to be able to talk about it and is to mm. be able to to ask for help. That's 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 some real strength. Uh, so that's step one, addressing the fears. Uh, step two is acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the pain that it is real, um, that it happened and and that it, it, it needs to be addressed. And then step three is abandoning all excuses, because as I said earlier, um, right. you can get to the point where uh, where the pain, where the pain becomes a sort of comfort blanket. And it also, if you hold on to it long enough, it also can become an excuse. It can become an excuse um, to not do better, to not reach out. Mm. Uh, step four is admitting the truth of how everything occurred. You know, like I said about my situation, I participated in that. Nobody put a weapon to my head and told me to chew on those coca leaves that eventually caused um, the addiction that derailed my life. Uh, I guess you could say, External stimuli had a part in it, right? Being in that environment, um, the environment, the, the whole nature versus nurture thing, the environment squeezed me a bit because, mm. you know, uh, you know, uh, being in a hostile environment is an interesting thing because your mind just runs about, it runs, runs, runs. It never stops running about the possibility of what's around the next corner, what could happen. Um, and that drives some people crazy. It really could. And so, um, you know, you make decisions in that environment that you sometimes later regret. I just thank God that it didn't lead to my demise. It almost mm. did. It mm. almost did. But uh, and thank God for putting Dr. Solomon in my life because he yeah. showed me how to take something that that wanted to kill me and now use it to give me life so that I can also give other people life. Uh, the fourth step the fourth one I said is admitting the truth. The fifth is, so the first four is the hardest part of the work. Address, addressing the fear, um, acknowledging the pain, abandoning all excuses. And with each one, I go into great detail, um, you know, about how to do that using personal experience. And also um, my faith is woven into this book, but also some clinical know-how is in the book as well. Uh, the fifth step, fifth step is accepting the new reality, because once you walk through the first four, right. then you should start turning the corner now. You know, you you address the fear, you've acknowledged the pain. And Dr. Craig, I also need to say that um, this happened. This is this is going to happen uh, um, on a different time span for everybody. For some people, it may take a year to walk through all these steps. For some, it might take five years. This is a book that you can always reference over and over again. And it's not it's not a race. The key is doing it in a thorough way so that what you get out of it is sustainable over the right. long time. That, um, yeah. Uh, step six is what I call assessing the loss profit ratio. Right. OK. What did you what did you lose? You went through some things. Maybe you went through addiction. You lost some material things. Um, it could even be that you lost some relationships. You know, if, if we don't deal with that, those things will continue to deal with us too and threaten yes. to resurrect the addiction and put us um, on the slippery slope of relapse and those kind of things. So look at what you lost, accept it for what it is, you know, mourn over it, whatever you have to do to get through it. But then also look at the profit profit ratio. I gained some strength 
And I'm sure other people can say this this too, that have come, come through different things. I gained some strength coming out of all that I went through that I would have never gained had I not gone through it. Unfortunately, I went through it, but fortunately, I'm able to pull something beneficial out of it. So there is a profit that's coming out of it now. And I'm not talking about monetary profit. I'm talking mm-hmm. about being able now to make a real contribution to humanity mm. for the glory of God, from my perspective, for the glory mm. of God, helping humanity be better. I have something to give now. Mm. I, I have something to wake up for and be excited about the day to uh, to be, have the privilege to run a group or do a one on one session and pour into people and see see those light bulbs come on like Dr. Solomon did me. And that's what I live for. It, it's it's like um it's like the benefit. How can I say? There's an intrinsic connection. It's it's reciprocal. As I give out, I continue to get back and stay healthy as well. Yep. Uh, then number seven, step seven is what I call analyze the profits. Like literally, make a list now. Once you've identified the strengths, now um, make a list of them and prioritize them. And because it, in the in that list, you'll, you you could find your life's purpose. You could find the things that you become good at um, in the process of, of what you, what you've gone through, what, what it gave you, what your, what your difficulty, what your life's difficulty gave you the benefits that it gave you. Okay. You, you know how to talk to people. You're more compassionate now, you know, you're more driven now to help other people. So those, those things literally could lead to lead you into your life's purpose and, and significance. You know, like you said, analyze the, um, analyze the profits. What the profits. did you gain yep. out of your difficult situation? Yep. You know, there's pearls in the pain. That's what I always say. There's pearls in the pain. Yeah. Um, step eight is then then now um, add up all the benefits. And what that means is, you know, okay, how is life and how is all, all the lessons that I've learned through all that I've gone through, how has it enhanced my life? How has it enhanced mm-hmm. my life? How has it made me better? How has it put me in a different situation where now I can, I can number one, live life on a whole nother plane, and then number two, uh, make more of a contribution to other people's lives as well. And then there's 10 stages, uh, Craig. And there's two, the last two are um, embrace your full ability. Once you, once you have this um, acceptance of your newfound place in life, then it's time to embrace it embrace it fully. That's accept it, believe in it and own it. And then there's only one step left to do after that. And that's embark upon your your, your purpose, launch yourself out there into the world and make it happen. And as you give out, you continue to get back as you help others become healthy and understand their life's purpose. Yours, yours gets replenished as well. And amazing. That's the journey. Amazing. I really hope that um, people have made notes or if you're watching the recording that you rewind it. Um, I've been making notes as Mike's been talking and um, this has been really beneficial for me. Just as we wrap up, Mike, I've got your link to your website um, on the screen. It's also in the show notes. I'll check and make sure it is as well. So whether you're watching anybody on uh, LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Twitch, on any of the other platforms, even Pinterest now, where you oh, might wow. catch the recording of Mike. Um, do check the show notes. Do visit his website. Like me, grab a copy of his book or books. And uh, Mike, just to wrap up, what's one thing you would say to someone who 
was in the military, has transitioned to civilian life, and maybe they're carrying some of that baggage, that pain, that difficulty, such as you've had to a greater or a lesser extent, but still they're carrying something with them that's going to hold them back from fully experiencing all that they could have in civilian life. What would you say to them? <clears throat> I would say, first, let me let me start by saying this. I'm wearing this intentionally. This says tw number 22 on it, and beneath it, you can't see it, but it says, 22 veterans a day commit suicide. That's the average, 22 veterans a day. At least that's the, the average here in America. But I would imagine it's probably close anywhere in where there, you know, where people have gone to combat, et cetera. Um, and I was close to being one of those guys. And to my comrades um, who are maybe in that place right now on the edge, or maybe you might not be suicidal, you're just, just finding it hard to, to reintegrate uh, into quote unquote mainstream society and you feel like all hope is lost and you gave your best to the military and you didn't get much back, you might feel that way. I want to tell you that you 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 gained something that colleges and universities can't teach you. But now you have to have to first of all don't give up. One of my brothers took his life in 2014, Craig, one of my blood brothers. First of all, so I know what that is too. First of all, don't give up. Don't give up. You know, there's as long as you're still breathing, God still has purpose for you. I want to say that mm. you see if you see behind me, you see that guy in the camouflage. That was me coming back, coming back from that deployment as a 19 and a half year old. Just that glaze in my eyes, you know, just mm. just barely making it. And then on the you see the transformation on the other side on a stage somewhere pouring into people. That's what I do. That's what I live to do. I'm saying to you, to my friend, to Craig's a question. Um, don't give up. Don't give up. There's still purpose for your life, too. If if you're breathing, there's purpose. There's mm. purpose. And now you have to spend some time um, digging into what you've been through and find all the pearls and the power that it's given you because it's given you things that can transform your life altogether as well. And reach out. Don't suffer in silence unnecessarily because some people don't make it back from there. That's what I would say. Awesome. And uh, just with the comments for YouTube, I've actually put those those pearls of wisdom there so that we don't lose them. I uh, thank you very much for sharing your story, Mike. Thank you for sharing in great oh, detail pleasure. the experiences you. you've been through, through the challenge of transition back to civilian life and then what you're doing now to actually make a difference in the lives of other people. Thank you for sharing not only your pain, but the strategies that you've put into place by following the modeling and the mentors of other people who have gone before you and then emulating that and living out and building on their legacy to create your own legacy. Really appreciate what you're doing now in your service um, to humanity, as you said. Thank you very much for being with us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Dr. Craig. And thank you for what you do, too, in, in terms of giving us a platform to get our stories out there to encourage others. Thank you. Hey there, thank you so much. Yeah.